Beginnings have always seemed to coincide with moving to new places because I moved a lot. And I realized very quickly, even though I had my own house and I was super excited about it, that I was very isolated and I was living um, a life that wasn't really God honoring at that time. So I started to seek friendships in some way, shape or form and figured if I reach out to a church who has some sort of group, I might be able to meet people and that would be great. Well, it turns out that the, they did have a group that met on my street. There was a girl there and she insisted that I check out the church. She not only invited me, but she came to my house and picked me up and brought me there. And that gesture was a huge turning point for me that somebody would care enough about my spiritual walk to want to invite me into this church so that I could experience it. It was absolutely the beginning of me knowing God. I got involved with some guys from Campus Crusade for Christ and they really impacted my walk with Christ and um, taught me uh, discipleship, leadership, accountability, and I still consider them my closest friends. So I had no home church, no family close by like I used to, no friends that I'd speak of, I didn't even know my neighbors. For me to be able to really think through that whole practical theological process was, was just mind-bending and, and really life-changing. And I came across the question and it said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? I couldn't honestly answer the question, yes, I wanted to, but deep down inside me, I, I, you know, I thought, well, if I answer yes, it's, it's a lot. You know, it was right then and there that I, you know, I had said, hey, I'm, I'm ready for this. I want to you know, ask Christ into my life. And... Being created in God's image is life transforming. It kind of shapes everything about my life and even my work. And having a relationship with God, you know, was, it became abundantly clear how I needed to lean on Him so much more than I had ever before. When we think about someone being in the, made in the image of God, we know that they're made with dignity and purpose. When I first started to seek Christianity, I remember hearing the verse from Psalm 139, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It made no sense to me and I, under, I started asking questions and a good friend of mine explained that fearfully meant having reverence and respect. So it really helped me to kind of give a different perspective on how to view other people in light of how God sees them and how he sees me. I think of that, of being in, created in God's image as him being my Abba Father and I want to be more like him. That sin is something that you struggle with on a daily basis. You know, I mean, we are, by nature are sinners. So you're going to fall down. You ask God for, for repentance. He's going to pick you back up. And it's like riding a bike as a kid, you know. Um, you're going to fall off, but you just got to get up and keep trying it. So um, I think it's all about that relationship that you have with, with God. I feel like I'm um, so much more aware now of God's grace and how he meets me in the place after words and kind of like is that there to comfort me. I feel like as a child um, I was just striving to be perfect that um, I missed the whole idea of God's forgiveness and grace um, and I think that this is more significant in my life now. I'm a very driven person. My temptation could be to see everyone as a means to my end instead of seeing them as image bearers and serving them as Christ would. And, and I think to have, um, to have an awareness of, 
of sin at the root in my heart as maybe that little rising bit of anger that, that's there or um, kind of apologize for the words that do come out is, is evidence of God's grace that's at work. It was amazing to me when God did enter my life and showed me that all I needed was Him. You know, I was completely broken in a complete mess and I had no idea how to get back on my feet and I was completely lonely and just torn up. And now I'm able to enjoy marriage the way that God intended it because I was able to step away and say, I'm not going to do this my way anymore. I'm going to do it God's way even though it's going to take more time and maybe more challenging, but it's going to be worth it. Each of these stories, or each of these individuals represent a, a story, and each of their lives have small stories comprising a, a much larger story. The same can be said of each and every one of you in this room. We all have our, our beginnings. We all have our, our circumstances that carry us through life. And then we have, in this case, something happens. Something begins to happen where you begin to to think about God differently. You begin to have thoughts of, of who is God? Why am I here? What's wrong with this world? How will it be made right? And how, how can I, as a sinful person, be made right before a holy God? And you begin to have those moments, and then before you know it, you've, you've had a new beginning, uh, a, a new birth, a, a new life comes in where an old life used to exist, a new life is now there. We're starting a series called The Story, A Chronicle of Redemption. And like your life is comprised of a bunch of small stories with one overarching story, that's really what we see in the Bible as well. One big, gigantic story full of other small stories coming back and pointing to one unifying theme. And that's what we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And as we do, I I don't want you to see this in the abstract. I don't want you to see this as just stuff where, oh, I've got it. I've got the head knowledge. I understand this. I understand that. Realize that just like we, we hear from the words on the screen, This impacts you directly. How you respond to this story determines everything going forward. It determines your present and it determines your eternity. Because this story isn't just a story. This is our story. It's your story. It's my story. This isn't just something we read like we're picking up a novel. This is a, a, a true story that we're a part of, that we're in the midst of. So if you would, let's pray together now, and then we're going to begin to to look at this story in a little bit more detail. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have not left us in our sinful state, but you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to bring us back into your rest, to give us a hope and a future that we don't deserve to have. And Father, I pray now that as we open your word, 
we will be attentive to what you have to say. That I will be faithful to deliver and to say what you want me to say. Father, I pray that your name will increase and my name will decrease. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. As I said, this is, the Bible is one story comprised of a multitude of of smaller stories. And what the Bible does is it answers life's biggest questions. Questions of why am I here? How did I get here to begin with? What went wrong in this world? Why would somebody go into an airport and open fire? And when will this longing for justice that I have within me that you have within you, when will that be fulfilled? And how will it be fulfilled? There's so many questions that we have, and many of them we don't even realize we're asking, but we are. When we turn on the news, we're asking these questions. When we flip through a book, we're we're wrestling with the questions. But what we need to do now is is to not look for opinions and not look for the CNN headline that that says, you know, when you have a panel of people on CNN and they're all kind of gathered around, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? What we need to know is, is what is the truth? And let's look to the truth. Because this book that we're looking at, the Bible, is, it's really one book. It's comprised of over 66 books and letters written over by over 40 different authors over, over a several thousand year period of time. But ultimately, it has one author. Its author is God, who inspired every single word of this book, meaning every single word of this is God's word. Every word is telling a story. Every word is telling a unifying theme, one subject. And the subject is Jesus And God's plan of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every little story is a piece of the story of the Bible. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1, where our story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning. This is both our setting and the starting point of our story. And it's our setting because before the foundation of the world were laid, there was nothing. Nothing. Nothing, no no water, no people, no animals, no dinosaurs, no no creatures, no subatomic particles, no atoms, no chemicals. Nothing. Nothing but God. And I don't know about you, but my mind cannot comprehend nothingness. And let's just be honest, none of our minds can comprehend nothingness because all we've ever known is a world of stuff, a world of something. Our lives are filled with more something than we could ever possibly imagine or want. So our minds don't compute nothing. That is, except if Leslie asks me what I'm thinking and I tell her nothing and she looks at me like, puzzled and wondering. I'm thinking, I'm being honest. I'm thinking about nothing. Guys just have that gift. We do. But in the beginning, in the beginning, there was nothing except God. God. In the beginning, God. And what we need to understand is there has never been a time when God did not exist. He is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end which again goes against everything that we know 
Because all we know is a life full of beginnings and endings, right? We're born, and eventually we all will die. We start school. Lord willing, we graduate. We start a house payment, and we're either going to pay it off, somebody's going to repossess it, or or we're going to die trying, right? Our lives are full of beginnings and endings. We don't understand an eternal existence. We, we can't comprehend always existing. But with God, there is no beginning and there is no end. He has literally, there has never literally been a time when he did not exist. But to define God, to know God for who he really is, we can't be limited to just this verse. Maybe like you trying to understand who I am by me telling you one sentence. You can understand me by my one sentence better than we can understand God by one sentence because God in his infiniteness, however we say that, his infinityness or whatever, we'll make up words today, but you understand what I'm trying to say. We can't comprehend him in, in one book, much one, one sentence, but we want to do our best to understand him. We need the whole entire Bible to do this. We need the whole entire Bible to understand who he is. And we don't have the time to go into an exhaustive study of the doctrine of God this morning, though I wish we could. <laughs> I wish we could dive right in and begin to expound it and expound it. But the one thing that we see over and over again, a major theme throughout the Bible that God is revealing to us about himself is his three-in-oneness. It's a doctrine that we understand as, as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. See, throughout the entire Bible, we see over and over and over again, God the Father being referred to as God. We see the Son of God being referred to as God. We see God the Holy Spirit being referred to as God. And which means, we we have all throughout that God the Father is not God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son is not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit. And God, God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, nor God the Son, but there is only one God existing in three persons. Got it? Woo! Over and over, we see this played out throughout Scripture. There is one God eternally existing in three persons. And this is an incredibly important component to our story. So hold on to it. Register that. Because here's where we're at. There is the triune God of the Bible and nothing else. That's it. It's all there is. And he is existing in complete joy, in perfect fellowship, perfect rest. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. All he is and has is completely sufficient in and of himself. He He has existed forever in a perfect love relationship within the Trinity. It's all he needs. And then, in a moment, you know what he does? He creates. He creates. As Genesis 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know how he did it? Ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of nothing he creates. There was God and nothing else. Then he created the heavens and the earth, meaning the entire universe came into existence. And then we're told in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. (laughs) Don't miss this. 
Don't miss this. The earth was without form and void. Just look at that. Think about it for just a moment. Go beyond just the service. Think about everything that has come before it right there. There's now an earth. There's now a universe. There's now something when all there was before was nothing. And yes, it's without form. It's void of any life whatsoever. But there's something. There's something there. He didn't go to Hobby Lobby or Home Depot or anywhere to get the decorations or the materials. He created it out of nothing. And that's right there where some of you went, whoop, I'm checked out. That just seems too far-fetched. And if that's where you're at this morning, thinking, I just can't believe that, okay. It's okay to understand where you're at. But recognize, if we're going to approach this intellectually, you only have two other options to choose from, okay? To, to base your entire worldview upon. So one, you're either basing it upon the fact that there is a creator. There is intelligent design. And we can discuss the intricacies of this all we want, back and forth, kind of go in and around about it. But we're going to say, okay, number, option number one, there is a creator. We are here through intelligent design. However that looks, and we're going to talk about it some more today. But number two, the other option is, matter has eternally existed. The universe has just eternally existed. And unintelligent life or unintelligent matter mutated, transformed, everything else and evolved into intelligent life um, sprang up. And you can basically say with this view that the universe was all there was, all there is, all there ever will be. It's all one big kind of whatever. It's an accident. There's no meaning, no purpose to life whatsoever. It's the survival of the fittest in its fullest form. You could also take that version and kind of go Avatar movie. Anybody have seen the movie Avatar? It's way back when, but it's kind of that uh, pantheistic version of that the universe itself is kind of God. And it's little g there, God. Third option is you basically believe that all everything that is in existence came into existence out, out of nothing, but with the help of no one and nothing. So everything, something came out of nothing, but with the help of no one. Got that one? Makes complete sense to you uh, on, on that end? And again, it, it, meaningless gave proof to meaning, and oh, we could go on and on and on on this. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you hold one of these last two options, you have way more faith than I do. You are a person of incredible faith because the belief systems, these belief systems take an incredible amount of faith to believe and to hold to. To think through the questions of, where did we come from? Okay, you answer that. Why are we here? How do you answer that? How do you answer that longing for meaning in your life? You, with those, you're like, well, I don't have meaning. What's wrong in the world? How do you explain something like Fort Lauderdale? How? So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I'm going to go with the scientific approach because I don't have enough faith to be an atheist or an agnostic. I don't have that type of faith. So I'm going with the scientific approach. I'm following the evidence. I'm going with the most logical conclusion. There is a creator. 
There is a creator who created everything. And I don't need the Bible to understand this. Yes, you heard me correctly. I see heads kind of pop up. Like, he just said he didn't need the Bible. All I have to do is look outside. All I have to do is is look out upon creation. And I realize that you're not an accident, I'm not an accident, and nothing here is an accident. We're not accidents. We have meaning. But now to understand how God created, that's another story. We do need the Bible for this. We do need the scriptures here. Where we're told that God the Father speaks. And when he does, what happens? What happens, folks? Creation comes into existence. Life comes forth. He creates something out of nothing. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 5, and there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let, the, them, let it separate the waters from its, the waters. Verse 7, and it was so. Eight, verse 8, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning on the third day. Verse 14, and God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for the seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Verse 25, and God saw that it was Good. Now remember how I told you that understanding the doctrine of the Trinity was important? This right here is a big reason why. This is a big, big, big reason why. Because in the creation process, it's God the Father who speaks. God the Father does the speaking, but God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, they're not sitting this one out on the sidelines. They don't have like a bucket of popcorn and a Coke and sitting back going, Wow, that was cool. We're not seeing that take place here. As the scripture tells us that God the Son, the eternal word of God who carried out the Father's decree, he's the one who carries out the Father's decrees. As John 1.3 tells us, all things were made through him, him being the Son of God, and without him was not anything made that was made. We looked at Colossians 1.16 a few weeks back. We, we've talked about this. It tells us, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Again, him being the son of God. And why were they created? For him. We'll come to that in a minute. So this is what we have happening. God the Father speaks, and then the Son of God carries out his decrees. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? What's he doing here? 
Well, he's working in a different way. Genesis 1-2 tells us, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was, what he was doing here, one part of what he was doing, was he was sustaining and making known God's immediate presence in his creation. So the moment that creation comes forth, the moment the heavens and the earth were founded, God is present within his creation. His spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. But it's also the Holy Spirit who gives life to his creation. And as Job 34.14 says, if God took back his spirit and his breath from the earth, you know what it says it would happen if God just took back his spirit and his breath? All flesh would perish together. A man would return to dust. But now we see the role. God the Father speaking, God, God the Son carrying out the decrees, God the, the Holy Spirit bringing presence of God and bringing life to the creation. But now we're left with the question, why? Why? Why did God choose to create? Was he lonely? Was he bored? Was he just needing some fellowship? Because this is the reason that a lot of people give or have kind of wrestled with in their minds and kind of come with the most logical answer for them. And I understand why they come to it because you're thinking from a humanistic standpoint. Well, if I were by myself, all by myself, nothing existed, I would get lonely, wouldn't I? I would be bored, wouldn't I? But we're forgetting that that God is in the triune God that he is, is not alone. He's existed eternally. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Perfect love relationship. Lacks nothing, needs nothing, wants nothing, desires nothing. So the quick answer to this question or that thought is no. But I even had a pastor that I served with say this from the pulpit once. That, he, that God created us because he needed us. Now, I went and I talked with him about that. Long story short, let's just say that working relationship did not last long. But think about it for a moment. If God was lonely, if God was lonely, that means God lacked something. It means he was lacking. And if this was the case, that means the love and the fellowship of the triune God, that wasn't enough for him. And so he had to then create something to fill that void, which means by this reasoning that God would not be perfect. God would be lacking. And thankfully, this is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible because a God who is lacking is not worthy of our trust, is not worthy of our love, is not worthy of our obedience, is not worthy of our worship, and is definitely not capable of bringing salvation. But if he wasn't lonely, why did God create? Because again, he didn't need to. So why? Why did he? Well, this is a theme that is played out from Genesis to Revelation. He created for his glory. And specifically, as we saw in Colossians 1.16, for the glory of Christ. 
for the glory of his son. That's what we see played out here. This is a theme of the Bible. This is what we're going to track for the next several weeks as we go through this series. So keeping all this in mind, the triune God being eternally existent, needing nothing, lacking nothing, then speaking all the universe into existence out of nothing, intricately creating all of its inhabitants. For what purpose? For his glory. Brings us to this point. The pinnacle of his creation. Now ask yourself, what is the pinnacle of God's creation? Grab it. Have it in your mind. What is it? People. God's people. As we see in Genesis 1.26, still on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let, us, let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Yes. Yes. From the dust of the ground, God brings man into existence. And from the rib of Adam, he brings Eve into existence. Just as we see in Genesis 2. And this is the reason why mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Because unlike the rest of God's creation, we're told mankind is made in the image and the likeness of God. You're made in the image of God. Now, we are marred image bearers. And we're going to understand that more fully as towards the end of the sermon and then moving into next week. We are marred image bearers, but we are still image bearers nonetheless. Which means, don't ever let anyone convince you that your life is not important. Don't ever let anyone convince you that your life doesn't have meaning. You are created in the image and likeness of God. And yes, we're fallen image bearers. But we're image bearers nonetheless. And it explains so much about us. Why would a non-believer run into the flames of a burning tower as they're collapsing? Why would someone who is a non-believer run to aid the help of someone in an airport where the shootings are taking place? Because there's something in us that we are created in the image and likeness of God where we have compassion and love even in a fallen state that still is reflecting our Creator. We can discuss that more, but unlike the rest of creation, we are image bearers. And we're given responsibility. We're responsibility over the creation. Adam and Eve are, are given dominion over the created order, as we see in verse 28. As God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it was so. So what we have here is God's people, Adam and Eve created in the image and likeness of God for the glory of God. And then they're given a job description. And God says, okay, here's what I need you to do. One, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Have lots of babies. Go for it. Two, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth with those babies and subdue the entire earth as you have dominion over all the creatures of the earth. See, Adam and Eve were created to be representatives of God on earth. His image bears. Nothing in the created order had more authority than they do. Adam and Eve were given charge over everything. And then we're told in verse 25, that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. What a beautiful picture of the sinlessness and purity of the moment. It was just as God had designed. But that's not all. We're told that God specifically makes a place for them, his people, to dwell. As Genesis 2.8 tells us, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight for good and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is more than just a home for Adam and Eve. This is more than just a pretty garden. See, God is creating a place where he is known by his creation, where he is served by his creation, where he is worshipped by his creation, where he is present with his creation. And think about it. What are places like this called throughout the scriptures? Places where God is is known, where he is served, where he is worshipped, where he is present. What are places like this called? Temples. The temples. See, what we have is God creating a place, a world, a garden to display his glory. Just like we see the tabernacle and the temple throughout the Old Testament. Places where God dwelt among his people. The difference being, and don't miss this difference. The difference being, in the garden, there is no curtain separating God from his people. There is no holy of holies. It's just the holy presence of God with his people. No one has to turn their back like Moses did. No one has to cover their face or cover their feet like Isaiah. They're walking in unbroken fellowship with their creator. So in one sense, the Garden of Eden is a temple It's a holy dwelling place of God and God's people. It's creation exactly the way God designed it to be. And do you remember the charge that we just were talking about that God gave Adam and Eve? The charge to fill the earth and subdue it, have all kinds of babies, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over creation? Well, think of that charge as a priestly charge. A priestly charge to expand the borders of Eden so that, the, that God's kind of his habitable dwelling place will be the entire earth. He's saying, keep having babies. Keep, keep having Are they going to continue to fit in one garden forever? It'd be like New York City. We'd all be like this. You, know? no, you got to just keep having the babies and keep subduing, subduing creation and that garden would just continue to grow. And it would continue to grow and continue to grow and continue to grow. And what happens eventually? It's taken the whole entire earth is filled with God's people in God's place. That's what we would see. Thus, the glory of God was designed to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
And there's only one don't that is given to God's people. As we're told in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they are free. They are free to eat of any tree in the garden except one. Eat of the tree of life. Live forever. Live, eat everything. Have everything in the garden is yours. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing you're not to do. It's going to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. Do this. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens? You will surely die. And that brings us to the seventh day. God rests. As we see in chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. No more creating. No more speaking. All that God had willed and designed for his creation was now in his place. Creation itself is done. It's finished. Procreation, it's going to continue. And it's supposed to continue in abundance. We have procreation and cultivation, but no more creation. It's finished. And God doesn't rest here because he's tired. Again, if he was tired, that means he would be lacking something. Rather, God's rest here is indicating that he is now reigning over his creation for the good of his people. He is the sovereign Lord over all of his creation. He is in control. He is holding everything together, all things together by the word of his power. The same word that spoke it into existence and that brought about those decrees is now holding it together by the word of his power. And Israel's Old Testament Sabbath, the Old Testament Sabbath observance that we see in the old, uh, throughout the Old Testament, it was designed to replicate this rest. It was designed to be a reminder of this rest. It's a shadow of a rest that is to come. Remember, all the preceding six days, they're called what? Good and very good. But now look at what day seven is called. Holy. Why? Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in it, done in creation. And the theme of God's rest points to the refreshment and the joy that is found in God's presence for the believer. A holy, holy presence. And this rest was designed to last forever, to never end. God's people living in God's place, resting in God's holy presence as they submitted to his word, his rule. And that's what we have here in the garden. That's the picture we have. Adam and Eve were completely righteous when they were created. They walked and talked with God as regular as they would walk and talk with one another. They were naked and they were not ashamed. They were at rest in its original and fullest sense. They were, rely- were relying on God for absolutely everything. They had no anxieties, no worries, no pain, no sorrows, no frustration, no heartaches. 
They had no need for forgiveness or comfort because they were sinless and carefree. All they needed was God's fellowship. This was their rest, their fellowship with God. See, God completed his perfect work and he rested. Adam and Eve were his perfect work and they rested in him. This is how it was in the beginning. This was God's design. This, brothers and sisters, is why we desire rest so bad. This is why we we desire it. We're recognizing it as something like, I know it's there. I, I know it exists, but I just can't seem to obtain it. You know that feeling? When there's something like, you, you know it's there, but you just can't seem to get it. And so here's what we do. Here's what we do. We, we say, if I, if I could just have a nap, <laughs> if I could just get a good night's sleep, if I could just quit having that child, I, I love them dearly, <laughs> but if I could just, if it, just give me some peace and quiet, I hear all the moms saying, Amen. If I could just go on vacation, if I could just have a date night, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just. And then guess what happens? You get that seven-day, seven-night cruise. It's awesome. And you get back and you, you start back to work and guess what happens? You're restless again. Even on the cruise, you're, you're thinking, oh man, I've got to go back to work and I've got to go back to school and I've got to we're constantly in this state of rest. And the reason is, what's the reason for that is because something terrible happened. Something terrible happened. Satan, the created and fallen angelic being, began to dispute the validity of God's word. He offered up deceit disguised as kind of a plausible argument. Like, hey, look at this. We're going to look at this more next week. And ultimately what happened is he, he deceived God's people into doubting God's word to not trusting God's word. So they no longer were under his rule and ultimately are removed from his place and are no longer as his people because they lost their trust in his word. And thus, they ultimately, they lost their rest. They lose their rest. And from that time until now, mankind has not only been sinful, but restless. We are a restless people. We worry We have anxiety, we stress, we lose sleep. We're just restless. But this is the purpose of the Bible. This is the point of the story. God's plan to bring man back into his rest. This is what's beautiful about the video we watched before the sermon. It's God's people, restless, discovering in a moment, that rest. Even still in a fallen state, but understanding that we can still have rest, but not like we're going to have it one day. And here's what I mean. So God made a way for rest to be reclaimed. It's a plan that he set forth before the foundations of the world. So none of this is God having a plan B or him being caught off guard. He's all-knowing and all-powerful. But it's through his son, Jesus Christ, that we are once again offered life. 
life being another name for rest, but rest and life how it was meant to be. See, if we are to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're we're believing that he was a perfect sacrifice. And then when his blood was spilled for our sins, the, the, the curtain that separates man from God was torn in two. And we who are in Christ can now once again have access to the Father through the blood of the Son. We come to the Father through the blood of the Son. And in that, we are given life through the Holy Spirit. But you're saying, but Jeremy, I still feel restless. I still feel anxiety. I still feel worry, like just worry in my life. And you will. You will until Christ returns. But when he does return, every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. And death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor weeping. No more pain. All the former things will be passed away. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Where God's people will once again be in God's place, resting in the presence of God. And that's what we're longing for. We who are in Christ, we're longing for that to come. Because when we do watch news events take place, and we do see brokenness within our own families, And we do have those tears. We're longing. We're longing for something that once existed. And we're waiting for it to exist again. And the great thing is, the opportunity to receive this rest remains. If you don't have this rest, you can But the opportunity to receive this rest will not remain indefinitely. So if you don't possess this rest today, don't wait. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him to forgive you of your sins. And I I would love nothing more than to talk with you to answer questions, to wrestle through this together. But ultimately what we see here is a God, the God, the one and only God, eternally existent in the beginning. And then he created. Didn't need anything, didn't lack anything, doesn't want anything other than his glory to be known. And you say, well, isn't that selfish? Not if you're God. Because who else could he worship? There's no one higher. All glory comes to him. Everything that's happening in this world is happening to bring him glory. You think, how? We're not going to always have all the answers from this perspective. But what we do see is that everything will be made right. Right? 
and that longing for justice that we have, it's going to come. Those who, those who do not push, put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who do not take refuge under the blood of the Lamb, they will receive the just judgment that they deserve. And those who do take refuge in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, we will not receive the just judgment we deserve because Jesus received it for us. Lord, we praise you. I just want to keep want to keep talking about your glory. I want to keep talking about your plan, but want to say thank you. One, you didn't have to create us. But you did. You didn't have to redeem us, but you have. So Father, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you, say thank you for your son. I want to say thank you for the, the gift of your Holy Spirit. I want to say thank you for the fact that you are in control of all things even when I can't figure anything out. Father, I want to say forgive us. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. For everyone in this room, I pray that you will bring every single one of us to conviction of the sin that is in our life. The unrepentant sin that we are not bringing to you. Lord, may we repent of that sin Lord, rest in your grace. Lord, have your way in this time. And for people who are having questions, Lord, I pray that they seek answers to these questions and seek the truth that is found only in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.